Level check. Level, level, check. level, level. Level, level, level. Level, level, level. Level, level, level. Level, Bishop Orcus. Blah, blah. Gibby, you have to talk. I'm going to play your favorite actor with unusual eyes. Oscar winners on TV. Enjoy Family TV Fun, the Prime Video Monthly. L-E-V-E-L. Get started. My favorite actor is Gene Hackman. Who's yours? This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. I haven't. Still looking. Guys, this week there is some sort of sporting event going on. NCAA tournament? No, that doesn't sound real. Nope. Mm -mm. Basketball? 64 teams? 66? There's not 64 teams in basketball. Yeah, they have a bracket. (laughs) <laughs> and you um, vote on, they play each you other vote on it you vote on who wins the team with the most votes I just think on. they all it's deserve really to win yeah weird so today we'll be talking about our favorite sports movies so to kick us off say your name and if you had to make a go at playing any sport professionally what would it be Jordan go my name is Jordan the only sport that I think I like enough to do would be auto racing Fun. Mm. and I don't like to get hurt I like boxing yeah nobody ever gets hurt in auto racing <laughs> well you can go a whole race without getting hurt. You we, can't go a whole boxing match without getting apparently hurt. If you're you really go good, a whole, you can. You I'm can't go a whole good. racing movie without getting hurt because every single <laughs> racing movie somebody gets hurt in. Well, yeah. Have you raced? Pro- have you raced before? Have you raced professionally? Go karts. Mm. Sounds so similar. No. Similar. You raced around the block in Silver Lake every morning. Yeah. Yeah. Good reference. No one will get. <laughs> <laughs> it's a city. Uh, Tim's full of those. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to go with uh, table tennis, ping pong. Ooh. You're uh, not very good at I don't it. I'm terrible at it, but if I put in the time, if I, you know, 10 hours a day, Every day, six days a week for like 12 years. I, I bet I could compete. I'd like for you to do that. I'd go watch you play ping pong. I'd go you. watch you lose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can do that anytime. <laughs> this is Kyle Gibby Gibson. Uh, the sport that I would play professionally would be basketball because you get four off days a week. You get to, I wouldn't want to start or actually like play. I'm pretty I sure just they want to practice kind of sit on the bench on those days. They don't practice every day because a lot of them are mm-hmm. travel days and then they get to spend all day and they can walk around a cool new city. Are there a lot of uh, 39-year-old rookies in basketball? <laughs> I'm trying to think of how you could make a movie about a 39-year-old basketball rookie. This summer. Uh, just cast he'd, have have, he'd have to have mm-hmm. some sort of power where he makes it 100% mm-hmm. of a shot. Like, like, Mike, he, like Mike. Yeah. yeah. Finds a pair of shoes. Or no, like he got hypnotized by a psychiatrist <laughs> yeah. and he got really good at shooting the ball. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> the so. office space of basketball movies. Write that down. This is a 1960s Disney movie waiting to happen. <laughs> Where's your notepad, Hudson? Write that down. I am not. Lance, go. Uh, this is Lance. I'm going to go with golf. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I like the feel of golf. It's a very beautiful game. It's uh, You can make an insane amount of money, very low chance of injury, and their wives are beautiful. Mm-hmm. So Okay. I would like to note that Lance is wearing his uh, Nike shirt <laughs> mm-hmm. for this and episode. Nike sponsors. I know. I got suited and up for Nike. this one. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you actually sponsored and we didn't know it? Mm-hmm. One of us uh, should be. I think he has and one flip-flops on. <laughs> Gibby is wearing his polo shirt, so also <laughs> sports-related. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing the same thing I wear every day. This is true. Which is a basketball warm-up, <laughs> shirt, warm-up suit. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Not only in a hot shooting shirt. <laughs> All right. We asked you guys on Facebook what your favorite sports movies were, and you guys responded in droves. I feel like we got more responses to this one than just about anything we posted so far. People love sports. So let's read a few out of them. Do you want to take this first one here, Lance? Hi, this is Jacob York. I feel certain about this. I know people love their Costner. I know people love stories about ragtags making good. I know people love baseball as a metaphor for something. The correct answer is white men can't jump. Basketball. Yes, that is a basketball film. Yeah. Was that Lando Calrissian? <laughs> no, that was Howard. Cosell. That was Howard Cosell. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Okay, well, I you can't help you there. Saw, he was Muhammad uh, Ali's friend. You never saw. Better. <laughs> he only had one friend. <laughs> really, he was an unlikable fellow. So you never to saw be- Better Off Dead. Howard oh, Cosell. It's been a long time. Howard Cosell. Yeah, famous sportscaster. Uh, have you guys seen Why Men Can Jump? Yes, yes, I haven't seen it in a long time. Great movie. Yeah, yeah I like it a lot. Huh. Yeah, this is from Lana Kate Gardner. A newer one to check out, which I think is equally epic. Is McFarland USA, baby? Especially if you want to feel happy at the end of a movie, unlike how we often feel at the end of a sporting event. I love when he starts laughing in the middle of this. <laughs> what is McFarland USA? A movie about cross-country runners set in Southern California with Disney, Kevin Costner Disney as part movie. of the Kevin Costner. Oh, race. that's right. I it was that's really good. good too. Yeah. It was excellent. Good choice. Did Lena. you hear it's good from Lana K. Garner? It was not from Lana K. Garner. Was it from Probably Sarah somebody. Palin? She ver- verified it. Probably from Gibby. Is she from McFarland, USA? Nope, but she's a big fan of that movie. Anyway. Alrighty. Hmm. This is Corey Loomis. The Ration, 1986. Josh Brolin landed on a skateboard <laughs> after the Goonies to star in this skater movie about two rival street gangs who settle their scores in a downhill race that will make you forget about why you ever thought the crane kick was cool. I feel like that went on forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's only half of the quote, too. Yeah. You said, you, it's so the movie's Thrashing. Yeah. When you thrashing. said it, it sounded like you said The Ration. Like, it's a movie about a, a group of guys who are, like, stranded on an island, and they're, they're doing rations, dude. and they only have one ration right. left. Yeah. They just have they one have to, skateboard yeah. to share ration amongst their themselves. skateboards. Uh, I rewatched Thrashing uh, not too long ago, and I actually enjoyed it. Like, it was Why a fun, fun 80s movie. I don't remember. Just to compare remember. it to Gleaming the Cube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably it. That's <laughs> the reason he watches every movie. <laughs> we'll see how it stacks up. <laughs> Another loser. <laughs> nice try, Schindler's List. <laughs> <laughs> Tosses it in the fire. <laughs> All right. If you guys want your favorites right on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm. So, first of all, what makes something um, a sport? Movie. I think it's about a sport. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a pretty that easy so. question. Uh, or if Jordan has to be a good sport to <laughs> sit down and watch it. I'm not sure all the movies picked tonight actually involve a sport. Okay. I'm going to say that right now. Uh, I, I sense something coming in my direction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got my sights aimed on you, my friend. Because one fine. of these is not a sport, but it's a great movie. So, Lance, how do you define a sport? Oh, it has to involve some degree of athletic prowess, I believe. This is a kind of a classic debate people have. What is a sport? What makes something a sport? I believe it has to have two things, athleticism and competition involved. So that's why I wouldn't consider like chess a sport. Chess is difficult. It's competition, but there's no athletic. You ever tried to pick one of those up? <laughs> yeah. What if they put like weights in the chess pieces? Okay. Are we going to be ridiculous tonight? Are we going <laughs> to? Yes. We're going to? Okay. No. Yes. As opposed to... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our super serious talks. Yeah. So this is actually, there's some gray area here. Racing. 
I think it's. A, I don't know. I don't oh, know. If it's a I'm sport or not. It's definitely a sport. What, where's the Absolutely athletic sport. prowess in it though? You're They're just all pretty fit. A, you don't I see like, like fat racers. I feel like any any activity that requires training your body in some way. Yeah, so yeah. if that's reflect reflexes, if it's you know, like I think that's why pool counts as well. Is like you're training your body to respond, aiming at something. Would, it takes would, a lot would, of muscle control. Yeah. Things like that. And racing. Archery. Racing takes an incredible amount of coordination and um, stamina. D- endurance. Yeah. Stamina. Yeah. I am not traditionally a sports guy and probably am even anti-sports in many ways. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> um, but but Three Picks Today easily fall in probably my top 30 films of all time. And I usually do enjoy sports movies because I think that sports, lends, sports lend themselves to film uh, in that there is a clear antagonist clear stakes, a clear goal. It's usually an underdog story. All these things that make for, for great film also for drama, make for naturally. great, yeah, lend themselves to sports very, very easily. I loathe sports. What about sports movies? And sports movies. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not my wheelhouse. This was just this, this is not a topic I was anxious to get into. But it's surpri- I like more than I expected. To, I, I went when looking at movies I like that involve sports. I was surprised at how many I actually. I liked. thought you were going to be like, guys. I watched Hoosiers this week for the first time, and I just want to say I'm going to try to be a professional basketball player try now. Out I'm yeah. trying out next year old basketball Aim high. We have an interesting dichotomy here because so me and Gibby are really into sports like in real life like we, yeah. we watch like not just movies like we watch sport we love sports and you guys games. aren't you guys aren't so into them and that's no. interesting it's interesting that you have artistic people and sports people and and there are people that like both but these mm-hmm. two worlds don't understand each other right. a lot of the time but to me they have so much in common right like like a, like a, a group of artistic people just because you want to be an artist i understand most of you sports people <laughs> wish you were artists one, well, no. one of those sides beats up the other side a lot more often <laughs> so we're the underdogs well no no but my, my point is like i mean for example like Meryl Streep gets on a platform at the Golden Grobes and Grobes, <laughs> the, the, the Golden Grobes, yeah. Golden Grobes. <laughs> a lot right. of inappropriate hands. Yeah, a lot that of night. inappropriate hands. That no, night. but no, like, she, like you, you could have a group of like artistic people going, "Ha, look at those idiots who painted their faces for for that game." But then they'll all dress up in cosplay and go to Dragon Con. It's like there, there's so much bleed over in those two worlds. Yeah, it's like they don't sure. see how much they really have in sure, common. Sure, I don't do either of those things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're offending everybody today. No, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to offend anybody. What, he wore what, what, I, what I'm saying is people love to come together around something. Like they love to True. to yes. find a commonality. And everybody a big wants movie a tribe. Out. Music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, music scenes. Yeah, and so that's why people tend to unite over these things. All right, Jordan, start us off. You're number three. Let's start off in kind of a funny way. We're going to start off with a sequel. That's not and a not sport. Is that funny? Sequels are sports. <laughs> 25 years after Paul Newman played The Hustler, which we talked about in the Home State Movies episode last season, Martin Scorsese directed Paul Newman, a very young Tom Cruise, and the marvelous Mary Beth Monstrantonio in the 1986 film... I don't know why her name is so funny. <laughs> because that's not how you say it. You don't say it, Monster Monster Antonio. Monster Antonio. I believe it's Mastrantonio. Monster? There's an N in M-A-S-T-R-A-N. Oh, I spelled it wrong. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) Master murder. Mass murder. You want to start over? And the marvelous Mary Beth Mastrantonio in the 1986 film. Wait, Mary Beth? (laughs) We're never going to let it get through this. Start it over. What's her name? Mary Elizabeth. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Weird. Let's just talk about Helen Shaver. Just say Helen Shaver was in it. Shaver? Doesn't matter. (laughs) <laughs> this must have been when Letty was coming to my office nine times every minute. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in the 1986 film The Color of Money. The original title was uh, Green. 
<laughs> Scorsese just wanted to yeah. make it a little more interesting. Yeah. Yep. After being banned from the sport, yes, sport nope. Lance, nope. of pool at the end of The Hustler, Fast Eddie Felson teaches a cocky and incredibly talented young Vincent the art of pool hustling and rekindles his own flame long forgotten. Looking at Tom Cruise's hair in this movie, did you keep thinking broccoli? <laughs> That's what I kept thinking it, the whole time. Yeah, it's got some, some real body. Some <laughs> Wow. It's like Hudson's hair. Thanks, guys. It's a poofier. Yeah, less spiky. Broccolier. (laughs) More floretti. How does he do that? (laughs) Uh, I love this movie. I think that The Color of Money is only a shade or two less awesome than The Hustler. They are very different films, though, and intentionally so. It's filled with ridiculously exciting camera work and phenomenal performances by all three of the lead actors, plus a great scene with Forrest Whitaker and a cameo by Iggy Pop. Really? Wow. Yeah. Iggy Pop. He's that guy that looks like Iggy Pop in it. Selling popsicles out front. What scene is he in? A montage of mm. pool hustling. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> montage of the screw. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Beyond the thrill of watching pool hustlers at work, the movie fantastically explores, on one hand, the relationship between an old man who was once great and a young man who has great potential. And on the other hand, the question of an aging man getting his groove back and reconnecting with the passions of his youth. The screenplay was written by one of my absolute favorite authors, Richard Price, and has a great zinger on this subject. If you're too old to cut the mustard, you can still lick the jar, right? And all of this told through the lens of competition, on and off the table, between the players and between the old pro and his protege. The critical reception of this film is super interesting to me. Both Siskel and Rebert hated it. Really? (laughs) Yes. Siskel saying, The premise might sound interesting, but the plotting is so utterly predictable that the color of money turns into a pool room variation of the Karate Kid. What's so bad about that? He thought it was bad. I don't think it's bad. I would have been like, should have been called The Color of Poop. <laughs> That's why you don't review movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess you do. He does. Yeah, he goes <laughs> the whole podcast. We're doing it right now. Uh, oh, this is what we're doing? And <laughs> Rebert basically saying he could have liked it, except that Scorsese directed it, so it's a huge disappointment. But for the most part, Weak. other critics hailed it as a great, however commercial, success for Scorsese. I don't care either way. Commercial or not, to me, The Color of Money falls into the other section, quote-unquote, of Scorsese's filmography, with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and After Hours and others that aren't what he's known for but show just how masterful he is as a director. Well, it's a weird film to me. It's, it's always been in this kind of blind spot for me. I don't think of it when I think of Scorsese right. films. I don't think of it when I think of Tom Cruise movies. Right. It's, a, it's this movie I kind of forget about, and every few years I kind of rediscover it, and I love it, and then I forget about it again. Yeah. I'm not really sure why. It always gets lost in the shuffle for me. Yeah, I don't know... I I don't, I, um, I don't know how to answer that like question gets, for you. Does it get lost in those like 1980s Tom Cruise is great at something movies? Yeah, <laughs> yeah whether it's like bartending or flying a, a plane or yeah. kidnapping Driving his a mentally challenged brother. Or, he's always good at things. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the theme of this movie too. This whole old man versus young up and coming talent yeah. thing. Do you know what this behind the scenes story was? Because there's a book called Color of Money. There's a sequel to the book, The Hustler. Right. But they did not base this story no. on the sequel book. Paul Newman wanted to wanted to revisit the character. Yeah. And so he called Scorsese because he wanted Scorsese to do it. And so he sent Scorsese the book. And Scorsese's uh, like, Yeah, I'll do this, but we're not doing the book. Huh. Oh, oh hi, hi, Paul. I just got a <laughs> I just got a book in the mail from you. <laughs> so it's he called, called the color of money. So he got um 
Richard Price to write it, who rules. I was, was going I was going to argue that this wasn't really a sports movie, but well, then the, I remember you're smart. Well, but but, but I mean, I oh, remember no, that the cover of the uh, seminal 1983 Huey Lewis in the News album Sports mm-hmm. uh, featured a pool table. So it's all is cool. He, is Huey Lewis yep. the arbiter yeah. of Huey what Lewis, is and isn't a sport? He defined. So. He de- he made the defining album Sports. Yeah, the craziest and weirdest bit of trivia. Interesting tidbit, Gibby, <laughs> from this movie is that it's the origin for the title of one of the greatest first-person shooter computer games of all time. The name is taken... Color of Money. Nope. Goldeneye? <laughs> Good guess. A terrible guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think widely that's considered one of the best first-person shooter games. Right, but it makes no it, sense. It is, yeah, I <laughs> know. I mean, that was right. been a terrible trivia. And, and that, yeah. that was a Nintendo game, I think. And yeah, what well, we're what talking about is computer games. Oh. The name is taken from a line Vincent speaks when asked what is in his cue case. He simply answers, Doom. Doom. Oh. Interesting. Uh, Great game. Doom. Great game. The Probably a terrible m- movie. Uh, and a couple of years later, Spielberg made a sequel to this, uh, The Color of Purple. Yeah. A little yeah. weird. It was a actually a couple weird, years but... before. It's a flashback <laughs> showing the early days of The Hustler. Like the really early days, like Civil War era days of The Hustler. My number three is 1984's The Karate Kid. Hey, you're the best Karate Kid, as many of you may know, follows Daniel LaRusso as he moves from New Jersey to California and after struggling to fit in, finds a friend and mentor in Mr. Miyagi, a war veteran played by Pat Morita, nominated for his role, who teaches uh, Daniel martial arts, but also how to be a man. How did Who did he lose to? Because he should not have lost, you know? The war? No, Maria. <laughs> Pat. He was nominated. In the Oscars. Yeah, uh, I do not know. Sorry. I uh, you're not picking the Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan? Uh, definitely not that one, no. Although that was better than I thought it would be, but it's certainly not. What's no disturbing is it wouldn't surprise me if you had picked that one. <laughs> yeah. That's what's so troubling. Disturbs he just said it was also, better than I thought it would be. John, I'm not sure that's saying much. Because we all watched it growing up, I feel like Karate Kid unfairly gets grouped in with these other kind of nostalgia-filled 80s films like Teen Wolf or Footloose. And to me, the movie has more in common with with Rocky, which isn't surprising since this director, John G. Albinson, also directed this film. Both films have underdog protagonists who want to prove themselves, but they're aided by the fact that both characters are so pure-hearted and innocent. Both films have romance and heart and comedy spread throughout, and both films have this great loose style to them, and I feel like it makes it the movie feel like it's improvised, even though it isn't. One of my favorite examples of this is when Daniel is picking Allie up for a date, and he's talking to her parents on their front porch, and he's like nervously kicking this brick column. Um, Mom and Dad, this is Daniel Russo, and these are my parents, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Mills. Oh, how do you do, Daniel? Oh, hi. Hello, Daniel. Nice to meet you. Where are you going, honey? Oh, I don't know. Where are we going? I don't know. Wherever you want to go. Golf and stuff? Hi, I guess we're going to golf and stuff. Yeah. Oh, uh, don't worry about that. I thought you were going to have that fixed. I am. I was. I will. Um, but he accidentally kicks it off, and it just feels like this moment captured, like not a movie moment. It feels like a real moment. And I feel like the movie is so quirky. I feel like it's a... When I watch it, I feel like it's a movie moment. Yeah, because it's a moment in a movie. Yeah, that's what always gets me. You know what? Feels like, I have a hard time getting past that. You know, it feels like a real <laughs> moment in this movie when those kids in the skeleton costumes chase them around the whole like city. That, that felt, felt real, real to you. Yeah. 
<laughs> happened to me so much. <laughs> <laughs> the movie does have all the inspirational sports movie cliches of bad guys, training montages, and a big battle at the end, but it all feels organic and earned and takes the occasional opportunity to keep us guessing. The other thing that, that makes the movie work so well Elizabeth is... Elizabeth She's great in it. Although I feel like Daniel's such a small like kid, like weird. she seems bigger weird. than him in some way. But I feel like there's a real weight to the relationships in the movie that they aren't one dimensional. You've got Daniel and his mom, Daniel and Allie, and especially the character of Mr. Miyagi, who could have so easily come off as a kind of stereotypical mentor character, but who has a much deeper backstory. And we realize that he needs Daniel as much as Daniel needs him. Mm-hmm. The most interesting character in this movie to me has always been the evil sensei, Crease. Yeah. Crease. yeah. Uh, played by Martin Coe because I can't figure out if this guy is a complete sociopath who needs to be locked up or is just this incredibly sad, lonely man who has somehow allowed himself to get mired in high school politics. (laughs) Like it's nuts. He's like, like I can understand why Johnny or whether one of the other kids has a bully mindset because they're like 16. Mm -hmm. But this guy's just as bad as they are. And he's a grown man with a business and like bills to pay. And he's obsessed with like, we got to kill this kid. Like what is his problem? He's just a jerk. He is just a jerk. Like most adults would see bullying and try and like dissuade the bully and he's like, No, we have to we have to make it worse. We have to destroy him. Like he's like he's like in his forties. It's like why is he why is he so obsessed with That's this? A great question. Well he's uh it, it teases a couple of things. One, it teases that he's a Vietnam vet and so there's right, probably he was in Rambo. There's a little bit yeah. That's right, yeah. Same character. Well, I've heard that it's possibly could be the setup for his yeah. character here. I mean, not really, but people theorize. No, um, let's go really. But he does have this I mean, the thing that he's teaching those kids is this idea. <laughs> So he's teaching these kids to be this immovable or unstoppable force. And so therefore that extends through his students towards Daniel. I don't think it's not like a personal thing against Daniel. And actually, I think I read somewhere that Daniel and Kreese never actually talked to each other in this entire movie. They don't. And like, why would he not want to teach Daniel? Like if he wants to mold young men into this, like why does he get wrapped up in the whole popularity hierarchy? Of well, this Daniel high school? wanted to go to that karate school. And when he went over there, he just saw all the bullies in the uh, class. Well, I'm sure a, he would have accepted him. A bad guy needs an enemy just as much as a good guy does. Yeah. I think, uh, there's a scene at the end of this film where Kreese tells the one kid on his team to like legitimately hurt Daniel Russo. You have a problem with that, Mr. Russo? And Mr. Russo. When he yeah. does it, that scene. Mr. Lawrence. You have a problem I, with that, Mr. Lawrence? I watched this again recently, and when that scene happens and the kid kicks Daniel, like I felt for that other kid. Like yeah. My, yeah, that was a good scene. Because he immediately runs to him. He's yeah. like, I'm so sorry. I'm so I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's brutal. I mean, pretty- he's the most evil character in the movie by far. Yeah. Because he's like, he's like the puppet master of these kids, and he's like a grown man who should know better. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the great thing about the, all the students in it, that they do turn by the end, and they're on mm. Daniel's side against their teacher, which is, it, you would need a bigger bad in order to make that work, right. you know? Yeah. It's also interesting that, like, karate is the pivotal sport at this <laughs> high school. Yeah. Is that true anywhere? Yeah, probably not. But karate was karate was pretty big. You don't know that it is. Yeah. It's no, just hang this on. Karate was big kids. because of this because movie. Of I, I took karate after this, and I went three lessons in. I was like, we haven't even learned crane kicks yet. I'm done with <laughs> this. This is stupid. Yeah. How much do you think karate teachers in the '80s hated this movie? I'd lo- oh, oh, I'd yeah. love. I would love to see like a graph. I would love to see a graph of like 
karate membership in the 80s because it spiked for about a month and then yeah. it plummeted <laughs> back to where it was. I like, went for years. Like all these new Never kids coming into class. Yeah, when uh, do we need to like wax off the walls or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> when do we get to paint fences? <laughs> yeah. How many crane kicks did you do after the movie ended, Gibby? Six. And oh, then oh. I hurt my hamstring <laughs> and then I stopped. He pulled his hammy at the yeah. age of 10. Anytime <laughs> I found a stump as a kid, I oh, was doing yeah. a crane kick. You had to it. try to do yeah. it. Had to. All right, Gibby, number three. Hey, I found a natural segue between, you, if you would have left that number one after Le Mans, uh, one of the boys in the film is Chad McQueen, <laughs> and he is Steve McQueen's son. Do your f***ing <laughs> segment. Just letting Hudson know. He blew it. My number three film is uh, Friday Night Lights, 2004 movie by Peter Berg. It's based on a nonfiction book by Buzz Bissinger, Peter Berg's cousin. Is he an astronaut? Huh. <laughs> yeah. Buzz Bissinger. That's a good astronaut name. Uh, follows one season of a West Texas high school football team in Odessa, Texas. Odessa is an economically and socially depressed oil town whose sole pride is in their high school football team, the Permian Panthers. So in 1988, they were predicted to win the championship again after having one of the nation's top recruits and running back James Earl, quote-unquote, Booby Miles, and returning senior Mike Winchell. But James when, Earl Booby Jones. Yeah, James Earl Booby Jones. <laughs> they were predicted by Why is local, his name, yeah. local prophets. Why is his name Booby? That's just his nickname. I don't know. They don't go into it. That's they something I would want explained in a movie. <laughs> There's a prequel about it. Yeah. Oh, good. Is it called The Blind Side? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But when he suffers a season-ending injury, season injury in the first game, it's up to coach Gary Gaines, played by a really good Billy Bob Thornton, to rally the team and the town as the season marches towards his championship. Gibby says Billy Bob Thornton is really good. <laughs> He's really good in this movie. Hey, Kyle, this is Billy Bob Thornton. Um, <laughs> why, do you let, why do you let Hudson talk to you like that? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you should stand up to him. Sorry, coach. I let you down. <clears throat> Uh, football's not my favorite sport, and I it's not it's just I played a lot of sports growing up, and I never actually played football competitively. Although I was pretty good at flag football, uh, but I grew up in the South, and this is a highly competitive football county where we went to school and where we grew up. So I know the import that people place upon this sport. And my parents now live in a town that has a 1,500 student school, but a 6,000 seat football stadium. This is a film where I imagine the reaction was very different depending on what part of the country you're from. Mm. And, and there there's people in some areas who watch this and were probably just baffled by this high school football culture. But where we grew up in the South, I was watching it going, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it made total sense. It was totally relatable and it just all looked really familiar. But do you not think that that's a bad way to view sports the way that these. It's horrendous. Yeah. It is. It's absolutely I think horrendous. This movie does a pretty okay. good job of saying this is not the appropriate right. menu. But that's why they made a whole movie glorifying it. They don't glorify it. No, they don't glorify it at all. I didn't think. Yeah. This, this, well, there, are places, it, so. So there, there are places. So <laughs> there are places in this country where what you do between the age of 15 and 18 it's on a football field will define the rest of your life. Right. And in that regard, it makes this movie very hard to watch, hmm. I thought. The scene where, where Booby realizes his career is over. <laughs> so hard know, to take Hard, it's hard to take seriously when you say that. That that is gut wrenching. It is it is so hard to watch when he's in the car with his grandfather crying. Now what are we gonna do? I can't do nothing else but play football. Hey, hey, don't worry about that. Don't worry about. I can't be do nothing else. I can't do nothing else but play football. What? We practiced it. We we practiced. You told me he was gonna go to the pro. I thought we gonna do it on my knee. His career and basically his life are over at the age of, what, 17? There's so many other things to do with one's life. No, I mean, in this town, it's it's a depressed town. you got to think about it from their perspective, though. There's not. They're trapped. In reality, they're not, but in their mindset, they are. They don't have an art school in this town? No. No. (laughs) 
No. They defunded it for football. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah I mean, right. I'm sure they did. In your opinion, is it not okay for high schoolers, but it's okay for college students, or it's okay for post-college football players to put that kind of pressure on them? I think at least when you're a college student, you're an adult. I mean, you know, depending mm-hmm. on how it's you define adult. Um, do I think there are problems at the college level? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely think that. But you can't get you can't start playing football in college. Right. What? <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. You could watch this film in one of two ways. I think people that love football and are crazy about football, like in the South here in Texas, wherever, love it and think it's an awesome movie, think it's pro football. But I believe you can watch it and the opposite too and come out of this and say football is depressing. It's right. ruining these people's lives. And the movie does an equal job of showing both sides mm-hmm. of it. it, it, show, it it's not a total downer either. I mean, it shows the ups and downsides of it. I got to give a spoiler here. The last game, the cha- they make it the championship game and they lose. And there's this really funny thing where it, there's this crawl that comes up on the screen that says, the next year the Panthers won the championship. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, why didn't they make a movie about that year <laughs> right. instead of this one? Right, why didn't they put us well, through all of that? I read the book. The book is excellent. It's very, I mean, one thing that the movie doesn't really get into is the town is super racially divided. Mm. And this is 1988 Texas, which is a little backwards anyway. And I mean, the, the, Sorry, the black Texas. kids on the yeah, yeah. way to piss off our Texas the, listenership. The, the movie's 88 as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. The movie's in 88. So it, the movie follows the, the book, basically, the story of this. Remember how they're driving DeLoreans around? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can tell. Um, one thing that I think the movie does a really great job at is showing the burden that these kids feel every week as they play for their whole city, the pride of their town. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's dumb that we put our pride in the results of a sports team, but I do it even now. Like if I want Atlanta to be awesome because I love this town and I love people that live here, but our sports suck. <laughs> and yeah, it's a nightmare. And it kind of just, I mean, we make it to the Super Bowl, we blow the biggest lead of all time. And you're like, well, that's us. But I mean, every yeah. team sucks except the one that wins, right? right. And yeah, but we're just, never the one that wins. What yeah, but you, you made it to the Super Bowl. Yeah. That's not nothing. Yeah, there's a lot of teams that are made, never made it to the Super Bowl. Don't, don't say that. They wish that they could be you're, you're actually angering me right now. That's not good enough. You uh, hear me, Falcons? I'm only happy if I win. <laughs> I just like to win once every 50 years. But almost ask, everybody loses. You're in good company. Shut up. I was eating at lunch at Moe's today and was watching the halftime speech of the final game, and I start tearing up in there. And uh, there's no doubt. This... Now, you all have known me for a while, and for a long time now, you've been hearing me talk about being perfect. Well, I want you to understand something. To me... Being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. It's not about winning. It's about you and your relationship to yourself and your family and your friends. Being perfect is about being able to look your friends in the eye and know that you didn't let them down because you told them the truth. And that truth is, is that you did everything that you could. There wasn't one more thing that you could have done. Can you live in that moment as best you can with clear eyes and love in your heart? With joy in your heart. If you can do that, gentlemen, then you're perfect. He talks about perfection and how it's not actually being perfect. It's being able to look somebody in the eye and tell Guys, them. Because perfection's not being perfect. It's, yeah, you know, it's looking sure somebody in the tell eye. Tell them I did I'm the best sure the that I could. the root word of perfection is perfect. Yeah. Well, guys, I can look you in the eyes right now and tell you I did nowhere near the best I could on reviewing this film or the other film. <laughs> 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 wow.
Uh, Lance, number three. Occasionally, something happens in the sports world that transcends sports and makes an incredible statement about humanity. There have been a handful of those moments in the past century. Jesse Owens' performance at the Berlin Olympics in the face of Nazism and white supremacy, and Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in 1947. There's one such moment that happened in my lifetime, even though I was two and don't remember it at all, but that's the story of the U.S. hockey team beating the seemingly invincible Russian team in the 1980 Olympics. That's the story told in my first film, Gavin O'Connor's 2004 movie Miracle, which recounts the tale of Herb Brooks, played by Kurt Russell, the coach of that team who was handed the thankless, seemingly impossible task of beating a Russian team many called unbeatable, with nothing more than a group of college kids and washed up players at his disposal. So why was this such a big deal? The opening shots of Miracle do a great job of illustrating the state of America at that time, and it was not good. The country was in the throes of the Cold War, multiple domestic and international crisis, crisis, crises, crisis? crises going on, and it was a time where people were beginning to question the ideals of America. America had lost its way, and people were legitimately wondering if maybe the Russians weren't going to win the Cold War and prove that their model of government was the better one. People desperately needed hope and something to believe in again, and they would find it in the most unlikely of places. Sports! Well, yeah. Handed to them via a group of 20-something-year-old kids in Lake Placid, New York. Herb Brooks is, to me, a fascinating character who is tailor-made for the movies. He's played by Kurt Russell, who, first off, we have to talk about his hair in this movie. Kurt, Kurt Russell is one of my favorite actors, and if you remember, he started out as a Disney kid back in the 60s and 70s, and because this movie's set in 1980, we get to see a gr- grown-up Kurt Russell with the same haircut he had <laughs> as a kid, which was awesome. <laughs> Um, He's the focal point of the film, and he had an unconventional approach to beating the Russians that recognized his team was less talented, but also found a strategy in being better conditioned and playing better as a cohesive unit. He knew man for man he could never beat them. He even tells his team, you're not as talented as these guys, and he's right. But squad for squad, he knew he could find advantages that that the Russians weren't taking, and he basically outsmarted them. That cohesiveness is what he relies on, and in one of the great scenes from the film, he's disgusted with his squad after they play an uninspired game in a preliminary match. He makes them run suicide drills for hours, yelling at them. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. He makes them run again, yelling at them repeatedly, trying to get his message through their heads. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again. Earlier in the film, he had asked the players for their name, where they're from, and who they play for. And to the last question, they always answer with the name of the college team they were on. After hours of this brutal workout, the players are almost passed out, throwing up, and it's terrible. One of the players finally speaks up. Michael Ruzioni. We're through Massachusetts. Who do you play for? I play for the United States of America. And finally, Brooks has made his team realize what all Americans needed to hear at the time, that we're in this together, that the problems we face were not bigger than us, and that we're united by ideals that do matter and will win out in the end. This is a fantastic pick, Lance, and this well, thank is you, easily, easily in my top five to ten of sports movies of all time. So like seven and a half on average. <laughs> yeah, if I had to yep. average. Top seven um, and a half. <laughs> 
It's, uh, <laughs> you know, every time I watch this film, I'm still, I still get anxious and nervous at the end. Yeah. That we're not going to win the game. Yeah. Yeah. And that those final five to six minutes after USA scores a go ahead goal are just a masterpiece in editing and just you yeah. know, how to, how to shoot intense yeah. scenes. It's awesome. Yeah. It was great. Is this the thing? Obviously what happened on a skating rink didn't determine the fate of the world, but this plays into why sports matter to people because they start to paint our narrative of the world. They bring us together. We see our own individual stories and our national story intertwined with what happens in a game. And we start to think maybe if a group of kids can do the impossible and slay a terrifying giant like they did back in 1980, there's hope for our country and even ourselves. Mm. Brooks was a consultant on the film and he tragically died in a car accident shortly before it came out and before and before he was able to view the final cut. The final words on screen before the credits roll are he never saw it, he lived it. I feel like this is a good this is a good explanation of where kind of sports fall apart for me because hearing you talk, I just I, I don't get how winning a game can like bring a country together. Oh, well, I covered like that. So. Well, I know I know yeah. what you said. I just it doesn't make sense in my mind. Or talking about him making these guys do this drill to get the point across. Like, why doesn't he just say, "Hey, guys, we're all in this together"? Well, if you yeah, watch the, the movie, president say that. <laughs> What? Why didn't Reagan do this? Yeah, it's a president's job. He should have been yeah. out there on the ice. Because it, it's not... It's, he it's, should have had us, the entire country running drills. <laughs> Hearing someone just say the words and earning that lesson are two different things. Well, it's certainly not very cinematic for him to just be like, hey, I'm... And they're guys, like, oh, okay. America. Go. No, that'd make a great short film. <laughs> Yeah. He, did, um, he didn't want to have to explain it to them. He wanted them to discover it from themselves. And that process is what mattered. Yeah, the whole team are guys that actually yeah. played hockey, except for one, the, the goalie who's yeah. wasn't friends a couple but of But they didn't try and get like Matt Damon to be the goalie. <laughs> right, or, like, right. That would have been stupid. Because, no, because that cool. was the true story. Robin of these. Williams plays like the Russian like, guy. You mean they didn't get Russian. Dolph Lundgren? To be the opposing coach? Yeah. Yeah, no, this is a Hudson. I am 100% sure you would really like this. Yeah, you'd love it. Okay, I'll watch it. it. I I would, I really would have watched this movie, but I can only take so many movies of sports teams winning games. So many inspirational speeches in one week. It's just, it's, in all honesty, it is really hard for me to watch too much of that. What's interesting though is about a lot of these movies is they don't win the game. Yeah, no, that's true. But it it still kind of almost feels the same. It's still some sort of weird victory at the end. One interesting footnote to this the, the game against the Russians was actually not the gold medal game. They had to play one more game. I think it was they beat the Swedes or the yeah. Norwegians. And I'd always wonder oh. what would have happened if we'd lost that game. <laughs> it would have been like, oh, America's not going to make it. <laughs> A new Cold War, I guess. <laughs> it would have reignited it. Sweden would have made it to the, the moon first. <laughs> Sweden would now be the dominant country in the world. <laughs> All right, uh, Jordan, number two. All right, my number two pick uh, is another Forrest Whitaker vehicle. Um, <laughs> A Forrest Whitaker joint. <laughs> it's even got sport in the name. Blood Sport from 1988, directed by Newt Arnold, who was an assistant director on The Godfather 2, The Goonies, Blade Runner, 16 Candles, among many others. I'm sorry, he learned much. He learned at the feet of Francis Ford Coppola and then made this. That's exactly (laughs) right. Doubt that. that. You know who loves this movie? I do know who loves this movie. You guys going to tell our audience? A ton of Americans, including (laughs) Donald Trump. (laughs) Who listed it as his favorite film. Uh, He he listed it in 1988 as his favorite film. Correct. And he said that he'd watch it over and over again on his private jet, but he would ask his son to fast forward the boring parts, meaning the parts where they didn't fight. (laughs) (laughs) Those are like the best parts of the movie when the horrible acting comes out. Sorry, go ahead. 
Uh, it stars, as we all know, the Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> this is uh, Van Damme's breakout role. He plays Frank Dukes, D-U-X, based on a real life, but maybe not quite as real as he'd like you to believe, American martial arts badass who goes to Hong <laughs> Kong to compete in a controversial martial arts tournament called the Kumite. And uh, we'll just have a song say Kumite over and over again for you real quick. <laughs> I, Umate, Umate. There are two ways to watch this movie. One, as a really fun and ridiculous quote-unquote bad movie with some awesome action scenes that you can laugh at and make fun of and enjoy all at the same time. And it's super easy to watch it this way. I did it that way. Yeah. (laughs) The acting is pitiful at best, the plot rudimentary, the slow-mo shots of Van Damme's faces hysterical, and really just silly from beginning to end. I've seen this movie more times than anything but Star Wars and have mostly watched it in this way. Or, two, you can watch it as a devastating and heartfelt story of a man's redemption. (laughs) Jordan and Jordan alone has watched it this way. Only one human has ever watched it that way. I promise you Donald Trump did not watch it. Well, I'm not much like Donald Trump. A man who, as a child, was directionless and ran with the wrong crowd, who was caught burglarizing a home by its owner and was taken in by that owner and given direction and discipline and purpose and found a true friend in his son. After the son, assumably his only friend, dies tragically young, Frank wants to honor this father figure, his Shidoshi, by competing in the Kumite and earning a katana sword like the one that they were stealing from the house at the beginning of the movie. Along the way, Frank makes another true friend, Ray, who he must defend and avenge in the Kumite. Viewed from this second perspective, it's a really beautiful film, punctuated at the end by the fulfilled friendship of Frank and Ray after Frank wins the Kumite while Ray is in the hospital. A show of incredible love, friendship, and vulnerability between the two very macho fighters that is rarely, if ever, displayed in film or real life. Anytime, any place, anywhere, if you ever need me, I'll be there. I love you, my friend. Me too. And Frank actually kisses Ray on the head as they leave. It's pretty remarkable. You're spending like you're, you're spending way too much intellect on this movie. I feel like you're doing a bit. <laughs> I'm not doing a bit at all. No, he's dead serious. No, I, <laughs> I, I'm being completely serious. I, I think that I think the story is actually pretty awesome in the way that he he earns what it was that he was going to steal in the beginning. This is one of those movies where whenever you would turn on the TV on Saturday afternoon, yeah. it, was it was always on. on. That's why I've and, seen and, it. Well, when you, and when you picked it, I realized I don't think I had ever sat down and watched the whole thing. Oh, so a couple wow. nights ago, from start to finish, I watched it, and I still don't know what the hell I watched. <laughs> And Van Damme is interesting in this movie because you can tell he was trying so hard. Yeah, like he yeah, got he, he, he you know, the producers had faith in him, and you you know he probably spent weeks in acting classes and wanted to get it just right, and <laughs> yeah. it's still just bomb. He actually says level. that he trained harder for this movie than anything he's I ever don't trained doubt it. for. One of the strangest things to me here is like they never really explain what Van Damme's deal is. He escapes from the military. These two guys are sent to well, like I mean, get him back. He has the the military won't let him go fight in the Kumite. Right, so and what's he, funny, but this so is what's funny. This it. is what's funny. They explain it. They're like the military's put too much money into you. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? He's a, he's a is, killer, is he like man. Wolverine? Like they've like they've made him this yeah. science project. Like what is? Well, he's not is, Wolverine because yeah. that kind of would have been cheating. But 
like, that Jason would have made Bourne. sense in an army like 500 years ago where everybody got on a field and like did like martial arts combat. But like, why is he so valuable to the military now? I don't know. Use your imagination. It's machine, man. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. My imagination has its limits. <laughs> so, but that was what was so great. It's like your body's a weapon. We can't let you get in the wrong hands or get hurt. I mean, I, I think that you're overthinking it. And I know that you think that I'm overthinking <laughs> oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think you're underthinking a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward what's going on in this movie. Maybe you and I need to meet in the middle somewhere. I'll underthink a little. You overthink a little. Let's little meet little. in the squared circle. Of the Kumite? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to the death. Uh, so I had seen this movie probably since 1989. And for whatever reason, my mom uh, loved Jean-Claude Van Damme. I mean, we saw all these uh, movies. Man, awesome. Bloodsmort, Black Evil, Kickboxer, No Retreat, No Surrender. I just remember watching all these as a kid. Huh. My mom loved it. And probably because JCVD is the complete opposite of my dad. Um <laughs> Dad can talk, but he sure can't do anything yeah. physical. He just wasn't man enough. <laughs> yeah. So uh, The army invested I, no money in him. I remember loving these movies as a kid. But, uh, man, I started it the other night and got 10 minutes in and I turned it off. I absolutely understand how you guys, having not watched this movie in an extremely long time, wouldn't watch it now and think it was great. I've been watching this movie consistently since 1990 or whenever I first saw it. And uh, I would I, like I, to I, thank you and the president. <laughs> Maybe maybe this means I'll be president someday. <laughs> I would like to think even if I'd watched this movie every day for the last 30 years of my life, I would still recognize how insane it is now. Oh, and I, and I do. Yeah. I am in no way saying that this is a color of money level quality <laughs> film, but this is a really fun movie well, with some with some cool stuff in it, and it's hilarious to watch the terrible acting. Believe me, I am not sitting here saying that yeah. there's great acting in this movie. Well, unlike Color of Money, it's about a sport, so I'll give you that. A blood sport. Zing. Mm. Hmm. The movie is worth watching just for the Van Damme oh, bikini brief let, let me be clear. This movie is absolutely worth watching. Oh, well, you didn't make that clear. No, I want to make that very clear. I just don't think it's worth watching for the same reason you think it's worth watching. I think everyone should see this movie repeatedly. I think maybe by the time you've seen this movie 200 times, you yeah. might feel the same way I feel about it. I can't wait to watch it again. It's so good. It's awesome. Just not for the reasons I would usually call it maybe awesome. All righty, my number two, Jerry Maguire. Continuing um, the same tradition as Bloodsport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot in common here. Written and directed by Cameron Crowe. Jerry Maguire begins where most movies would end, where our lead character, sports uber agent Jerry Maguire, has realized the shallowness of the world he works in and decides to put people before dollars. So he writes a mission statement called The Things We Think But Do Not Say. Suddenly it was all pretty clear. The answer was fewer clients, less money, more attention, caring for them, caring for ourselves and the games too, just starting our lives. Really? Hey, I'll be the first to admit it. What I was writing was somewhat touchy-feely. I didn't care. I have lost the ability to bullshit. It was the me I'd always wanted to be. And as the rest of his company gets the memo, he walks out into the hotel lobby to a standing ovation. But instead of credits rolling at this point, we follow the fallout of his decision. And it's a pretty spectacular fall from grace. Um, in an amazing scene, Jerry gives a final speech as he's leaving his office after being fired. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what you all think I'm going to do, which is just flip out! Well, let me just let me just say, as I ease out of the office, I helped build. I'm sorry, but it's a fact that there is such a thing 
as manners. A way of treating people. These fish have manners. These fish have manners. In fact, they're coming with me. I'm starting a new company, and the fish will come with me. Cameron Crowe has said one of the first ideas that drove Jerry Maguire is, um, what if you lost everything or lost a lot, and you looked around, and all those people that you thought would be there for life are gone. Who's left? That uh, cute girl from the office. That's who's left. <laughs> <laughs> Um, cause basically that's what happens is everybody's stripped away from him, including his fiance, uh, everybody at his work, all of his clients, everything's stripped away. I think it does the film a disservice to call it a romantic comedy, which is what it was marketed as and what most people think of it as. Yes, there is romance, but ultimately this is a movie about a man whose belief system is put to the test. It just so happens that at the heart of that belief system is relationships. So Dorothy on the romantic side, Ray on the parent-child side, but equal weight is given to Rod Tidwell on the friendship side. And I think those are the most powerful moments of the film. My favorite moments come from actually from Rod and Jerry's relationship that to me felt a kind of like planes, trains, and automobiles, like these two guys from different worlds kind of butting heads with each mm -hmm. other. I'll tell you why you don't have your $10 million yet. Right now, you are a paycheck player. You play with your head, not your heart. In your personal life, heart. But when you get on the field, it's all about what you didn't get, who's to blame, who underthrew the pass, who's got the contract you don't, who's not giving you your love. And you know what? That is not what inspires people. That is not what inspires people. Just shut up. Play the game. Play it from your heart. And you know what? I will show you the quant. And that's the truth, man. That's the truth. Can you handle it? It's just a question between friends. You know? Oh, and when they call you shrimp, I'm the one who defends you. I want to be friends with them. Fine. Why didn't Rod say you can't handle the truth? <laughs> I got mildly obsessed with this movie when it came out. I was I was 18 at the time, and it came out as I was going to college where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And because it had to do with this guy's career, it made me want to have this super cool job. And that didn't happen at all. Um, quite the opposite, actually. But this movie conveyed a kind of cool that I got mired in. Like, I wanted to be Jerry Maguire, not just because he had a cool job, but he's a character who is cool but still really confused and relatable. He's still figuring things out a lot like I was and still mm -hmm. am. And those are my favorite characters, the ones you want to be but they're not perfect and they have the same insecurities and problems you do. Uh, it also features this thing Tom Cruise does, this funny thing with his voice sometimes where it gets really high-pitched and he sounds like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and it's actually it's actually at the end of that clip you, you got. He says, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. You know? Yeah, I think it's funny that you say you want to be him because he's a character that he knows what he wants to be. He's just so bad at it. He doesn't know how to be it. Right, and mm. there's this great line that um, Dorothy gives where she says... I love him for the for the man he wants to be, and I love him for the man that he almost is. It's a great line, yeah, really yeah. great. Which that, really that describes scene, him. Yeah, the whole scene is is great when she's talking to her sister and doesn't know that he's listening. Well, it, it was refreshing. It was it, such an interesting casting decision too, because up to that point, every movie Tom Cruise had been in, he's perfect. He's just the guy's like, man, I got it all figured out. And from mm -hmm. from the first act to the third act, he's perfect. He's flawless at everything. It's like we were joking about earlier. He's always got this amazing skill, and he's just incredible at it. And this is the first movie where you get to see that guy you're so used to seeing flawless filled yeah. with flaws. And this is my favorite Tom Cruise performance. He's so incredibly over the top, but it totally fits yeah. the character. Yeah. Although I would argue that he has some real flaws in color money. His hair. Again, since I don't think of that when I think of Tom Cruise movies, I think <laughs> right. that's why I kind of get yeah. lost in yeah. it. 
Um, but this one much more so than this is one of my favorite movies to put on and laugh. Like I just laughed through this entire movie. I think it's hilarious. And I think all of that comedy comes out of the character, out of his desperation, out of his attempts to make it. Yeah. I, <laughs> anyone who knows me would know that I had not seen this movie, but out of deep caring respect for Hudson, I watched it <laughs> and a legitimate hope that I could then ridicule him for it. <laughs> But I actually really enjoyed this movie. It mm. took me about an hour before I realized I was enjoying huh. it. But you really got You fought it too, didn't you? You <laughs> were like, oh, I don't want to like this. Of course, of course, yeah. yeah. But I loved the friendship thing. Yeah. And I, but I think where you really have to hand it to Cameron Crowe here is that he made a rom-com for men and mm. made it effective to, to, I think, inspire men to not be shitheads. <laughs> Even men who are naturally just yeah. shit. Headed. And, 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 <laughs> I have and, heads filled with excrement, <laughs> is what you're saying, I think. So I hope that it was effective in that way to inspire a group of sports-loving yeah. meatheads a great way to, to actually it. be pretty good people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Here's a trivia. Uh, did you guys know that the human head weighs eight pounds? Oh, man. I actually read today that it weighs a little more than that. It's like 10 or 12 pounds. It yeah. probably depends on the head. <laughs> yeah. 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 That kid's head probably weighed like 37 pounds. Did you know my head weighs eight That kid's head was <laughs> massive. Yeah. yeah. That kid was a pretty obnoxious. Kind of a weird fact given that there's not, it's not like there's one head size. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know? Doesn't make Maybe that's sense. what makes it funnier. All they had to do was stick in the word average. Yeah. Would have worked. Fixed it. Get on the game, Cameron. <laughs> you know, though Cuba Gooding's great in this movie, it kind of ruined him for the rest of his career. I think he ruined him for the rest of his yeah, career. He did. Yeah, he totally immediately this after story. this, his next role was like some stupid Skeet Ulrich movie. Like he he was just oh, he gone. just he oh, seemed to just go, well, I can make crap now, and yeah. that's what he did. Hmm. It's a good film. Best Picture nominee. It raised an interesting point to me of a way to achieve success that I thought was really interesting. That when Rod sort of the like fakery and showboating that he had to do in order to reach <laughs> I thought was an interesting comment on fame and celebrity when really he just loved the game and then he played that pretty terrible trick on his family and everybody when he was injured <laughs> terrible trick I don't think he meant to I don't think he meant to be injured but then he <laughs> he definitely milked it right yeah, yeah, yeah. All, right, all right give me number 2 so you guys know what completes me watching my number <laughs> oh, 2 <boy>. film <laughs> <laughs> the 1976 baseball comedy, The Bad News Bears. This is directed by Michael Ritchie. It's about a drunken, washed-up former minor league baseball player, Morris Buttermaker, played by Walter Matthau and all his Walter Matthau-ness. Buttermaker's being paid by a city councilman to coach a team of basically just leftovers, kids with no other teams that wanted them, including the councilman's own son. film follows their hapless beginning, including what I think is the funniest baseball practice film scene ever put in the movies. All right, look alive. Let's get one. Are you ready? Let's get one out there. Engelberg. What? That is a bunt. B-U-N-T. The catcher is supposed to pick up the bunt and throw it to first base. Well, how was I supposed to know? You made sure the big deal yelling after them. It's diversionary tactic, Engelberg. Now get the ball. Why are you always picking on me? What did I do to you? Engelberg, crack your crummy belly ache and throw the ball to first base. And then a 23-0 shutout. But the team amazingly comes together after Buttermaker adds a girl pitcher and a punk cigarette-smoking Harley-Davidson driving kid named Kelly Leak. Uh, the movie culminates, as sports movies are wont to do, in a championship game where the Bears play the hated Yankees, team managed by a control freak and filled with a roster of superior players. What I found interesting is basically the last 30 minutes of this movie are the actual championship game. 
Yeah, so like they really lay themselves bare for the yeah. championship game. <laughs> uh, um, disclaimer that I probably should have done at the beginning. This is not a kid's movie. Uh, not even close. It, 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 so even though it's in the kids' sections of video stores back when they were video stores, there are definitely some harsh uh, derogatory words and comments spoken by little kids in this movie. The movie really bears its teeth. And it's really shocking to hear some of it. How many more of these are there? It's really, it's like yeah. really, really bad news <laughs> for conservative parents. <laughs> yeah. And it includes a scene of a grown man handing out beer to a bunch of 10 and 11-year-olds and them drinking it. So, so I mean, that's my warning. Uh, watch a TV version with your kids if you must, but uh, this movie is worth watching. So there was this magical time in the early mid-70s between this very sanitized version of America in the 50s and 60s and this eventual surge in political correctness where movies could get away with virtually anything. <laughs> and the factors came together in just the right way for a few brief years to allow it. Allow it. And Bad News Bears is, is a product of that. I think people were just like, well, we're going to send these kids off to Nam anyway. Yeah, They're going to die, do. so let's I just do. let them have some I fun. think it was a product of this like, uh, screw it, type <laughs> mentality that hit America for a while. Let's just make whatever we want. It doesn't yeah. matter. Because they, I was wondering that, but I was reading reviews about this that were written in that time, and they were aware of it. Yeah. Like It's not like yeah. people were like, yeah. Yeah. going right over their heads. Yeah. So so, it, so there's so many moments now that a modern audience would watch and be horrified by. And I feel like that's the power of this film, though. Not because it's shocking or because it's cool to see a 10-year-old smoking, but because it allowed but movies... It <laughs> it's funny. It's funny, but there's there's an emotional center to this film. And it, it, allowed, it allowed movies to delve into the brokenness of people in an incredibly honest way. And it let people talk the way broken, confused people talk and act the way they act. And that's really what this film is. It's a film about broken people finding each other and helping make each other better. It's what drives the story, and it gives it the emotional center that I, I referenced. And amidst the hilarious moments of kids fighting and swearing, we realize these aren't bad people. They're people who need redemption, and they find it in each other. In that regard, this film is incredibly mm -hmm. powerful. There's a scene where um, Amanda, Tatum O'Neill, plays her. The female pitcher is basically pleading with Buttermaker to spend time with her, and he's making it clear he doesn't want her around. And it's not that he's a bad guy. He just doesn't have any faith in himself. He loves her, but he thinks he's bad for her, and he doesn't see he's the father figure that she's desperate for. And I think he even like throws a beer on her and tells her to get lost. And we see her walking away crying, but then we flash back to him and he's crying too. While this is remembered as a very irreverent comedy, moments like that prove it's so much more than that. And personally, I was amazed how much I connected with this movie. Yeah, you should change the name of it to Care Bears. <laughs> All right, just, uh, let's just go to the next segment. He's just going to keep doing this. I mean, like Lane said, more importantly, I think it's actually kind of subversive. And it's about bad parenting and the way the adults live out their dreams and hopes and disappointments to their children or other children, too. And that's a big part of this. Mm. Uh, I think there's a very powerful scene at the end of the movie in the championship game where the Yankees coach, uh, Coach Turner. That's the opposing team. They're yeah, playing. the opposing yeah. team they're playing slaps his son on the mound in front of everybody. And it's basically because he disobeyed him about a pitch that he threw. And I mean, it's a hard scene to watch, but mm. having grown up playing little league baseball, I mean, I never got slapped and kids that I didn't get slapped, Probably but you could have. see, <laughs> I mean, it's a, uh, it's intense out there. And, and one thing that this film does is directed by Michael Ritchie, who directed another film that I talked about in politics, the candidate. And in a way it's kind of similar. This has a lot of, uh, he does great things with the audio and that there's a main conversation going on and there's some other side conversations where you hear people talking to, and it's just funny. But in, in the candidate, I was shocked at how relevant 1972 politics were in 2016. And that same way, bad news bears, like nothing's really changed in little league sports. We on Richie, Richie said he made this movie to make a statement. Like he was trying to say that, like, look at what we do to our kids sometimes because we, we, pit them against each other and we turn them into these like competitive freaks and we don't let them be kids. 
Hmm. A lot of these parents were barely there for their kids. Oh, yeah. All right. wow. Next movie. Yeah. You got anything? Uh, Mathow. He's great. The power oh, awesome. of Mathow. I, 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 it makes me sad that I think that he's, at this point, pretty underappreciated. Yeah. And, and not really talked about as, a, as the, the great that he was. Just his reactions in yeah. this movie are amazing. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't have to say anything. Just his looks. He's incredible and, and worth watching. He's yeah. just he's just so mentally absent mm-hmm. from so much of it. And just watching him stare off into space and like, he would rather be doing anything. Yeah. Right. And yet the other things he would rather be doing are as meaningless as this. Mm-hmm. Like he's just, his life has nothing going for it. And he's kind of resigned himself to it. And for some reason, it's hilarious. Yeah. I think, you know, kind of on a, it, it doesn't, it's not mentioned among Walter Matthau's great roles, or maybe it is, but I mean, this gets really emotional for Walter Matthau. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like the scene Lance was talking about, and there's a scene at the end in the championship game where he realizes he's become what he hates. He, yeah. He's way yeah. too into the game. And I mean, it's a pretty powerful scene when you realize he pushed it too far. Lance, number two. Boxing is a brutal sport. And so the nature of that naturally lends itself to stories about the sometimes brutal nature of life, the unfairness and tragedy of it. Million Dollar Baby, the 2004 Clint Eastwood film about a gruff, hardened boxing trainer named Frankie who reluctantly takes a determined young female boxer under his wing and watches her not only fulfill his dreams of success, but fill a void left in his life due to an absent relationship with his daughter. Upon first reading the script of this film, Eastwood said, it's a downer, but God, it's gorgeous. And that may be the best description I've ever heard for this film. It was filmed in just a few weeks. It came out of nowhere in 2004 to take the Oscar for Best Picture. It was released in December of that year, just barely making the deadline to be considered for the Oscar, despite the fact it had not even started shooting in July of that same year. Roger Ebert named it the best film of 2004, and perhaps more importantly, so did Lance Hurd. Mm. While boxing is brutal, I mean, the object is to beat the hell out of your opponent and you win by knocking someone out. There is a beauty to it. Far more strategy goes on than is evident to the amateur eye, some of which is explained in wonderful dialogue by Morgan Freeman's character, who plays a supporting role in the film. And he says, boxing is an unnatural act because everything in it is backwards. You want to move to the left, you don't step left, you push on the right toe. To move right, you use your left toe. Instead of running from the pain like a sane person would, you step into it. Boxing is kind of a dance between two people, and it mirrors the relationship that Frankie and Maggie, played by Hilary Swank, have in this movie. It's contentious at times. They pull in opposite directions, but they need each other desperately because one person standing alone in a ring can't accomplish anything. And like all fights, it must end in tragedy for one of the participants. So huge, huge spoiler alert coming up. Uh, Sorry, I have to do it. I'm sorry, I got to do it. My fault for not seeing it. When Clint Eastwood called this story a downer, he was not kidding. In a freak accident, Maggie breaks her neck during a fight and is paralyzed from the neck down, ending her career. Frankie blames himself, feeling he's failed her the same way he failed his daughter. The stakes are heightened when Maggie asks him to kill her, which Frankie doesn't want to do. He's come to love her and doesn't want to lose another daughter. In one of the saddest scenes ever committed to film, he grants her wish. So often sports films are about father-son relationships, and Million Dollar Baby is one of the few films of the genre to deal with father-daughter relationships, and the saddest and beauty that often permeate them. It is a film that, like boxing, asks us to step into the pain. It's a tough one to make jokes about. Gotta be honest. good luck. I saw this a good bit after the hype died down. Lance had kind of raved about it seven Academy Award nominations, one Best Picture, one Best Director. And so I was a little let down by it. It's not that I thought it was a bad movie. I just didn't think it deserved all of that attention. Mm -hmm. 
uh, in that particular year, especially. I feel like it got the award attention that it got because of the subject matter, not because of the quality of the film, at least in my opinion. I mean, obviously, a lot of people disagree with me. To me, it feels like what came before in the kind of first two thirds of the movie just felt like your average just kind of sports movie. Some of the, the characters were kind of unrealistic and it just felt like it hit all those beats in kind of a really boring way. But then I was kind of rethinking about it and I thought, well, maybe that's the point. Maybe they were setting up this story to be a typical sports movie in order to pull the, the rug out from on you. And really. so maybe, ma- yeah, maybe. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, Gibby told the joke. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I need to revisit it. But um, those, those were my feelings uh, that I remember watching the movie. Is, is Eastwood able to play non gruff, hardened, <laughs> grumpy old men at this point? Not at this point. I don't know if at any point he was able to play that. <laughs> the very first text message I ever received in my life was after Lance saw it, and he sent me what? a text message. This is on like the what? old phones. I didn't even know tech phones could do that. But I got a message from Lance's phone what number. Says, is this million dollar baby words? is awesome! Like exclamation yeah. exclamation. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> And then, wow. like, I had no idea what it was. I it, like, I how it, these magic yeah. words show up on he my phone? You didn't know how a phone yeah. got in his pocket. Yeah. I sent it for my BlackBerry. Yeah. I paged Gibby and it said, 911, million yeah. dollar baby is awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah you loved it. Uh, this is Paul Haggis, three years in a row, up for best Oscar for writing. Yeah, this is the first yeah he was three. all over it. And I can tell you didn't see the movie because you keep bringing up tangential facts to it. <laughs> no, I've seen the first half. So oh, the, uh, the first half. The, uh, the character you were talking about as being unrealistic is a Jay Baruchel character, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. so weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, there's nobody like this. Which right. character is unrealistic? Jay Baruchel. He's like maybe mentally handicapped. And Why is that just, unrealistic? It, it, the way, Why would they let him hang around there all Well, the and the way the character plays it, it's just so over yeah. the top. And yeah, it's, it's way over the top. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just have to And I'm a Jay Baruchel fan. I, lo- I, I, love I loved that character's story. I thought that was... I loved that. That got to me. Well, I didn't see mm. the end of it. I'm so, can I ask you, <laughs> I what, what happened halfway through that pulled you away? Uh, we were watching it on TV one afternoon and had to leave. I just never finished it. Okay. I didn't sit down to watch it. It was just on. Hoosiers was on. Yeah. <laughs> it's on another channel. I think this movie sounds fascinating and I've long wanted to see it, but it just hasn't happened. Mm. Jordan, number one. I think that there are perhaps two types of sports movies. Movies meant to make you feel good, to put you in league with the winning team, with an all-access pass to the locker room, and the hokey inspirational speeches. The ultimate spectator experience. And then, there are movies that really dig into the guts of the sport, that give you a guttural experience of the sport itself, and leave you feeling like you weren't just a spectator, but a player. The best, and possibly only, example of this latter type of sports movie is, in my humble opinion, and non-sports fan opinion, Steve McQueen's 1971 passion project, Le Mans. Does anybody want to make the obvious joke here? The man? You know what that means, Jordan? <laughs> the mans. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't think that's true. I'm, <laughs> I misunderstood true. the name of this title, and I've been watching birthing videos all week. <laughs> Le Mans. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm sure they, they've, very uh, they've all been great. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be picking some of them later this season. <laughs> I think some of them probably take as much endurance as you would need to watch this. Movie. <laughs> Watching this movie, uh, it was directed by Lee H. Katzen, a pretty much completely unknown director. McQueen plays a driver for the Porsche team his name being Michael Delaney, racing the world's oldest and most difficult endurance auto race, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, in the shadow of the previous year's race in which he caused a wreck that killed another driver. And that's when things get really Le Mans. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do we know Por- is it Porsche? Porsche? It's Porsche. Because they say it like thousand times in this movie. McQueen driving the Porsche. Uh, well, Porsche. They don't say McQueen well, actually. Lamont is, is McQueen's character driving the Porsche. <laughs> yeah. It's the Porsche versus the Ferrari. Right. Lamont is raced by um, car team. Like I mean cars <laughs> but like manufactured right. teams. Right. Right. So there's a Porsche team and a Ferrari team and a Mercedes of Firestone. Team. Gotcha. How many Lamont are in this movie? Like forty or something. No, I don't know what I'm asking either. <laughs> anyway, my dad was an amateur race car driver when I was very young. Really? Wow. Yes, he was. And his dream was always to be a Formula One driver, and that didn't happen. But his passion for the sport never wavered. So instead of football games, my dad took me to car races, including the Twelve Hours of Sebring, a similar by half race to Le Mans that happens in Florida. Coincidentally, Sebring is a race that McQueen himself finished second in in 1970, closely behind legendary driver Mario Andretti. Your dad sounds like quite a mon. No, Uh, my dad dad didn't finish second. (laughs) McQueen finished second. Did you see McQueen in 19... I was was not born in 1970. McQueen, the actor... Raced cars, yes. As did McQueen's did character a, okay, in yes. Le Mans. Did you make a flow chart of this that I can look at later? I didn't. Um, it's not hard. Where Steve does, McQueen was an actor who loved racing. Where does he Lightning wanted to McQueen make a movie? I know. I'm, I'm enjoying making it harder. No, than it is. nowhere. <laughs> no Except Lightning McQueen in, this? in a movie that you secretly <laughs> finally love. Pixar <laughs> comes <laughs> up. Uh, How did no, you not pick that? I think it's definitely because it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Gibby, that's sacrilege. Was, okay, Jordan, you're number one. Hey, thanks. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> uh, this is not your normal racing movie. No, I think you need to let people know, Jordan, that there is no talking in this movie. I'm for going to if you let me. If you let me talk about the movie, then we would find out. Find that no out. Talking. Stop in this being such a Lamont. Do you hear? Do you hear what I keep trying to say? This is not your normal racing movie, which means I'm getting to your point. This ain't your daddy's racing movie. No, this is my daddy's racing oh, movie. Right. It is your daddy's. It actually racing. is. Yeah. this is not your normal racing movie this is the 2001 a space odyssey of racing movies stunningly beautiful shockingly sparse we don't even hear any proper dialogue until 37 minutes into the 106 minute film mcqueen was obsessed with the film being purely authentic a real account of his life's deepest passion. They effectively shot the film twice, the first time actually qualifying a car equipped with cameras into the Le Mans race of 1970, which is pretty impressive. Hmm. Wow. The second time, a few months later, at the same location, recreating the race. And they shot without a script for the majority of the production. You can't tell. You can tell. Focusing solely on the drama on the track. And all of the sounds in the movie are not just car accurate, but accurate to which gear they were driving in. <laughs> wow. I have a note it's here. It's crazy. If you play any clips from the movie, it should just be loud car sounds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're awesome. <laughs> So, Gibby, you never answered my question. Did you yeah, watch this on your clip. TV or on your computer? Uh, both. <laughs> At the same time? <laughs> Over a period of days. I started on the TV, and then literally the first 20 minutes are just... <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And uh, Crystal like got really annoyed, so then I switched over to my... And to be clear, just so you know, Crystal is Gibby's Le Mans. Yeah. <laughs> 
now uh, that a, now that a Lamont can marry a Lamont yep. legally, it's all legal. Yeah. <laughs> to Gibby's point that I think he sees negatively, I don't see it negatively. Lamont is not a casual watch. Right. This is a movie that requires attention and concentration and a willingness to discourage all distractions, much like the sport itself. It was made in a time when the only way to see a movie was in the theater, and to truly appreciate the movie and gain the intended experience, you have to create that environment for your own viewing. Turn the lights out, crank the volume, and sit in the driver's seat. It's a ride you won't soon forget. Did you know, though, if you rearrange the letter of Lamon, it says, uh, it says, lame, son. I don't think it does. No, nope, I don't <laughs> think it does either. There's no, there's no, there's no, it's a good try, Gip. <laughs> Next movie. <laughs> Well, I think there, there was an O. There, yeah. The O came when Gibby realized there wasn't an O. <laughs> yeah. The O came when I realized that was a terrible joke. Oh, man. <laughs> All righty. My number one sports movie. Jerry Maguire is, is more about the business behind the sports than the sport itself, and my number one movie is similar. It's Moneyball. I don't think that was the proper introduction. I think you were supposed to say, show me the color of the money ball. <laughs> <laughs> Segwaying all of our films together. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Moneyball is the film directed by Bennett Miller based on the nonfiction book of the same name. And it gives you a fascinating look behind the scenes at baseball that I feel we rarely get to see. The scouting and trading and closed door dealing tells the story of Billy Bean played by Brad Pitt, the general manager of the Oakland A's. While Billy's team is being stripped away from him prior to the 2002 season, he brings on economist Peter Brand to help him beat the system. The thinking is that they don't need star players, they just need runs. Get guys on base and they'll win. It's practical baseball. He's a man who believes in something so much that he risks everything to pull this off. The most powerful moments in the film are when we get to look at Bean's personal life. He's a guy that never went to college because he got drafted right out of high school, but he failed to step up in the big leagues and ultimately went into management. He's a guy who knows what it's like to lose, and throughout the film, he just keeps losing and losing and losing. He's divorced, trying to be there for his tween daughter. He seems to have anger issues and, in fact, refuses to watch the games, instead letting off steam in the workout room during the games. I never got that he really had anger issues. Oh, really? Yeah. He does like the thing in his car, either. too, where he's like he like speeds and then slams on his brake. and then speeds I think he's just really into it, and I think... That the the games get him so psyched, um, not like psyched up, but like psyched out. Anger, yeah, not anger, just that it kind of. Huh. I, I think he's on. just a high strong individual. Yeah. I never yeah. got that he had like anger issues. I I, I don't have any idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, this Moneyball is one of my favorite books of all time, so I was really excited about this movie, and I ended up being really disappointed in it. This is a great example of how sometimes it's better to either not read the book or just try as best you can to separate the book from the movie and not let it cloud your expectations. Mm. But the thrust of what makes the book so great and smart is that it's about this guy who learned how to look at baseball from a completely unique perspective out of necessity. He's the general manager for the Oakland A's. The Oakland A's have no money. They're going up against like the Yankees, and they're just not playing the same game. So Billy Bean had to think of other ways to and the movie does go into this it goes mm-hmm. into the fact that he had to outsmart the system what and so what game were they playing well i mean it's baseball but it's it's the yankees have <laughs> if you unlimited- guys see jordan's face when he asked that <laughs> yeah. question i can't I it's think like he's a most serious yeah. question yeah. yeah no it's the yankees can go out and sign any talent they want the a's can't and, yet, and yet they play in the same league right. and so he's got to figure out a way to beat these guys even though it's i mean it's a, it's a they david versus- started a league of their own okay <laughs> We're going to have a serious conversation <laughs> about Moneyball. This is almost unbearable. Oh, now, yeah. now that Jordan's giving it back a little yeah. bit. Yeah. 
Yeah, now he's coming back at me. But in the past, baseball, being a general manager of baseball was about a scout looking at a guy and going off his gut instinct. And the failure rate of drafting players was incredible. So Bean came in and learned how to look at players as like these mathematical units of production. And that's what makes the books so great. And, and the problem I had with the film is it didn't go into that enough for me. Like, that was what intrigued me. Now, having right. said that, like, I hated the father-daughter stuff, but that yeah. was just me. Yeah. That being said, how cinematic can you really make mathematics on right. screen? I think the filmmakers probably had thing. quite a challenge here. And my guess is that when they were making this, they had a real probably debate about that. Like, how much into the book do we go versus sure. how cinematic can you really make that? It obviously worked for a lot of people. And I know there great. were some changes, like characters being combined together yeah. and yeah. things like that. The film ends with a scene uh, that, that always brings me to tears, and it's, it's probably too visual to play a clip. Um, so I'll explain it. We can just post a picture of you crying. <laughs> so uh, Peter shows Billy a clip, and this is, is at the end of the movie, um, and I won't say what happens in their season. Peter shows Billy a clip uh, of an overweight minor league player whose biggest fear is rounding to second after he hits the ball. He always wants to stop at first. And in this one game, he decides he's going to go for it, but as he rounds first base, he falls face down into the dirt, comes crawling back to the base. Everyone's laughing at him. His worst fears have come true, but what he didn't realize is that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it. That is embarrassing. Yes. He must be an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) He was also blind. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a movie that explores what it means to win better than any sports movie ever has. It's so much deeper than just, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. It's about how failure has power, how Mm -hmm. it makes us who we are, how we win in so many ways in our lives and we don't realize it because we're so focused on one specific win. It's all that this movie just floors me every time I watch it. I mean, he very much created a paradigm shift in baseball with this. And a lot of people were shocked he even allowed this book. Michael Lewis, who's a great author, he wrote Blindside. He's written several great books. The Big Short, he, he wrote several. He, a lot of people were shocked he let him write this book because it kind of gave away the secret sauce, sort of. Like, he kind of mm-hmm. gave away what he was doing that was outsmarting all these other clubs. I've never understood why he allowed this book to be written, hmm. but I'm very glad he did. Yeah, give me number one. So my number one film is Hoosiers from 1986. Follows Normandale, former college coach who has a checkered past, takes this job at a small school in middle nowhere Indiana as his way back into coaching. Uh, the coach Dale is played by a fantastic Gene Hackman. He shows up at his first practice and finds he doesn't even have barely enough to field a team unless he adds the equipment manager. After founding a town drunk as his assistant coach and take, talking to basketball wonderkind Jimmy Chitwood into rejoining the team, somehow they pull it all together to shock the state and make their way to the championship game. Bless you. Bless you. So Hoosiers is probably one of the most famous sports movies of all time. I was raised in a family that just loves basketball. I love basketball. It's my favorite sport. I I, I like the way they dribble up and down the court. (laughs) 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 I first saw this movie in 1986 with my dad at the movie theater. My dad loves basketball, just... It's basically what he lived for for the first 35 years of his life. Maybe it's the experience of seeing with my dad, seeing a film together about a sport that he loved and has passed on to me, but it just holds a dear place in my heart. Hoosiers is really all about the little guy. Uh, the, in the film, they're at a very small school, you know, maybe 50 to 60 people in there, maybe a little more, but not big. 64 but. boys. So here's a question. Was yep. Gene Hackman ever young? <laughs> Because I feel like if you looked at baby pictures of this guy, he would look about 55. Like he came out of the womb 55. And stayed there. Yeah. And just stayed there forever. Yeah, roughly 50 years. Yeah. He, he looks a little older than that now. 58. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like in Royal Tenenbaums, he probably looked about 60. 
He seems. I bet. My guess is that like 300 years ago, he was 55 and he got bit by a vampire, and he's just stayed 55 ever since. <laughs> That's why he's not yeah. acting anymore. He's yeah. retiring because we're yeah. noticing he's not aging. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's gotten weird. Yeah, started writing books. Wrote the Twilight series. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I love, I loved, <laughs> I loved this movie as a kid, and I, I was, I was a little afraid to revisit it because I was afraid it wouldn't hold up so well. It, it held up okay. I, I, it, it had problems, and there was some definitely some cheesiness in it, but I still kind of enjoyed it. It kind of reached that like deep down buried sentimentality in me somewhere a little bit and I think part of that is because it had like such sentimentality in me from when I was a kid because like, yeah. I remember going to see it with my dad too I want to like this movie but I feel like movies set in Indiana are just so corny oh <laughs> nice Ag- agriculture nice, jokes nice yeah. uh <clears throat> Did you have more to this say? This is it. <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for the whole last two hours of recording a podcast of Jordan's opinion on yeah. Hoosiers. Ooh. Well, I'm afraid you're not going to want it. Yeah. So I've never seen, I had never seen Hoosiers. I definitely didn't go see this with my dad. <laughs> I've never wanted to see this movie, but I watched it. <laughs> and a couple of things. Um, the first hour of this movie is fantastic. I saw Hackman as this Christ character coming to town and pushing back against essentially like Sadducees and Pharisees of basketball, uh, overturning the tables of the merchants in the temple, <laughs> performing <laughs> miracles, and inspiring the lowly and the unloved, which he does. Mm-hmm. He, he really does. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a beautiful and engaging first hour. Then we get to the second hour, and Hackman's Christ, instead of the usual Christ story, he gains the good graces of the very people he was fighting with, forms an army with the town's Goliath, and conquers Rome, rendering the second hour completely predictable, uninteresting, and corny. Uh, <laughs> Took a lot for you to say that. Zing. Yeah. My <clears throat> other big problem here is is the Jimmy character. So the Jimmy character is this, this kid who's amazing at basketball that never talks, that's just out there playing all the time. In the first hour, the only interaction we have with him is Hackman goes out and says, I don't really care if you play on the team or not. Then he misses a shot. Then he misses a shot, which is awesome. Yeah. It's it's really awesome yeah. that 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 that, that was of, really cool. Yeah. After making a lot of shots. Yeah, like it, they actually filmed that and he kept making all yeah, those shots. I mean he he's really good. And it's so like real life Jordan. Yeah, maybe I don't know if you're joking or not, but I think Hudson is kind of getting to something there where there is a reality to that. Where a basketball and basketball is a sport in particular where you do have to have that superstar player to be a truly great team. I think I think the power in what Hackman did though was making this kid believe in himself again. And I think that was valuable. I think he kind of let Jimmy spread his wings and fly, and that's what needed to happen. And the townspeople get behind him because nobody else has been able to do that. And Hackman came in and made it possible. And so I think in that regard, I see what you're saying. It would have been nice if Hackman had just saved the day thoroughly but as the coach I think there was a limit to what he could do and I think it acknowledged the reality that a coach is somewhat limited in what they can do the only thing that I really really loved about the end is, is the very last shot which is a direct rip from the last shot of The Shining interesting <laughs> You're talking about the scene when Gene Hackman's frozen to death and he's, yeah, the team <laughs> no. has left him behind. Yeah. No, there's a black and white picture of the team up on the wall of the All gymnasium right. and it just slowly pushes into it and and it ends showing this black and white team with Jack Nicholson's face just creepy. <laughs> it's interesting you it. mentioned The Shining because and Jack Nicholson because he really, really wanted the role of Coach Norman Dale. I, I understand Nicholson that. did? And, uh, yeah. He's a really? huge, and he's a huge basketball fan. He really wanted yeah. the role, but he was involved in some sort of lawsuit he and has he's a checker gone pass. for six months he's yeah, he's a little too checker. yeah he's not allowed and in so Indiana, uh and so he said well you go ahead and see if you can find somebody and then hackman got it and then a year and a half later uh nicholson went up to the director and said you know that was a good movie but if i'd been in it, it would have been a mega hit i'm pretty sure it was, was a it mega not? hit no, it was pretty big I think it did fine yeah. all right lance number one okay. 
Something about the game of baseball lends itself to the supernatural more than any other sport. It's Build a, a oh, dream. The, the supernatural. No, it's not where we're at. It's a game so inextricably linked with our national identity that we allow it to take us to places that would seem hokey or out of place with any other sport. It has Angels a, in the outfield. Shut your whore mouth. <laughs> the original or the... Baseball has a kind of privilege in that regard that we as Americans don't give other sports. So enter The Natural, Barry Levinson's 1984 film starring Robert Redford as Roy Hobbs, a once-in-a-lifetime talent whose baseball career is delayed by tragedy. Hobbs finally realizes his dream in an age where most players are ending their careers. Aided by a bat he cut from a tree that was struck by lightning, he puts a last place team on his back and takes the baseball world by storm. Now, it'd be easy to take the last sentence I just said and relegate this movie to, like, bad Disney kids movies, but this film couldn't be anything further from that. There's a heavy-handedness that Levinson brings to this subject matter that removes any silliness from it. But this is a drama to its core that plays into multiple themes. The importance of perseverance, overcoming the unfairness of life, and the belief in oneself as being bigger than our circumstances. Hobbes is an almost Paul Bunyan-type character at points in the film, pulling off feats that are thought to be impossible, including a moment where he comes up to bat and his manager yells, knock the cover off the ball. So Hobbs does just that. He hits the ball so hard that the cover literally comes off and we watch fielders trying to handle an unraveling ball of string that was a baseball moments earlier. And those dudes saying, that's a ball? We want a real ball. <laughs> yeah. The guy it seemed like he was out of like the mafia it's or something. It's so great. <laughs> uh, against all of that, the film grounds itself with Hobbes' personal story regarding a love interest from years earlier who he lost touch with, played by Glenn Close. In the famous scene at the end of the film, Hobbes hits a home run that shatters the lights of the stadium and his team celebrates amidst the sparks falling around him in a moment that is absolutely beautiful. And the film could have ended there, but it's a film about much more than baseball. So it takes us from there to a final shot of Hobbes years later, throwing a ball in a field with his son, mirroring an earlier shot where he did the same thing with his father years earlier. We talked in our crying episode about the father-son connection in film, and as someone whose fondest memories of childhood include playing catch with my father, The Natural seems tailor-made to bring many men to tears. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I'll add to that. My dad died when I was younger. I mean, there are always a few movies that I associate with him. So I, I rewatched that the movie this week and I was, I was telling my wife Afton the kind of story of my dad who lost his father as a young boy to a heart attack uh, and how much his life kind of mirrored that of Roy Hobbs, not the mm. baseball stuff, but just the losing the father and wanting to be a father. And I thought it was so cool that one of his favorite movies was this movie that explored fatherhood. And so it, it really kind of touched me in a special way. But but I didn't love the movie personally. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed it for its nostalgia. I enjoyed it for its kind of um, magical feel to it. There's a lot I liked about it, but I I just felt like there were a lot of kind of blanks in this movie. Well, I think you used the word, we talked about it earlier, you used the word disjointed. You thought it was kind of disjointed at points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there were were things either set up and paid off or things Mm. like over broadcast like to the audience and weren't kept mysterious enough. It just, to me, it needed a a rewrite or some editing or something to just pull the movie together. Mm. Yeah, it just Mm. just felt kind of all over the place. Uh, I, I, I saw this movie a lot as a kid and I like it um, but there's always been something that's been kind of off on it for me and I think the disjointed is part of it but then part of it's something you just brought up that I didn't even think of until then is that it is a heavy movie I mean it's and I think it's just in my opinion it's a little too heavy you think so for yeah I, well, it's I not do. cars, Gibby. I, I don't see it as heavy at all. It deals with some heavy things, but um, the way that the Hobbs character is and um, Robert Redford plays him is so kind of light and bright that he's this guy who knows what he wants. He's of pure intentions that it, it elevates all that kind of the stuff happening to him. Like you never get the sense that he's like depressed or anything like that. See, that, despite- that, that surprises me. I had a very different takeaway from this film. I, I, to me, it, it is extremely heavy. I never got any sort of lightness from it. And not just in the story 
or, or the elements of the plot, but even the look of it. The look of it actually, in a lot of ways, reminded me of Hoosiers. It had that old-timey, classic... Mm-hmm mahogany feel to it and and i love that's one of the things i've always loved about it just it gave me this like you know the movie poster the music let me say too if i mean it's such a recognizable score the the score is is one of the great scores of all time and one of the most recognizable off the bat I remember this movie as a kid. I, I have not seen it since. What I remember about this movie is how iconic some of the scenes are. Mm-hmm. And maybe more than almost any other movie I saw as a kid, I remember the cover being hit off the, the ball. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. remember him hitting the, the, the lights, lights up top. I mean, the, and yeah. I actually went back and watched some those clips today. And they are just amazingly shot. And... It just incredibly iconic, yeah. more so than I think I would say any other sports movie. It's a film that is very much punctuated by great moments and scenes. And mm-hmm. I think whether you don't like the film as a whole, which Hudson, it sounds like you didn't, mm-hmm. I think you'd probably agree there are a lot of great oh, moments. I could rewatch some of those scenes over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I didn't go back and revisit this movie before the show because there is this kind of part of me that's a little afraid it doesn't hold up as well. And I kind of want to mm-hmm. remember it as the great movie that I loved as a kid. I feel like Hobbs is kind of an idiot in this movie so there's this scene where he meets up with Glenn Close like 15 years later and she's like really hammering it over his head that he's the father of her kid so she's like oh his father and I aren't together he lives in New York he plays baseball his name is Roy and she's like and he's like well see you later she doesn't really say anything Roy do you get what I'm yeah. down here <laughs> I, yeah Roy to me in this movie is just a very wounded man he's just he's been put through the ringer his entire life well he's, I, he's physically wounded isn't he well he is yeah. Both, he, yeah he he went through a situation years earlier where he was shot and that scene's crazy mm-hmm. yeah that, I remember that scene terrifying me when I was mm-hmm. a kid but to me he's kind of in an almost daze throughout the movie yeah. because he's so he's just life has just turned him upside down and so I think the things that you interpreted as him being kind of aloof right to me were just him like throwing his hands in the air and going huh. I can't take much more you yeah, know like I, I think yeah I, I think it was just a different perception and I think the disconnect might be that he disappears for 15 years and no you don't really know what he did or I what see, happened I loved to that him. I loved that so much but that he just I would vanishes. have liked to have seen some of that and seen what he went through in that time I'm, I was glad he vanished for 15 years I didn't want to know what had happened because it allowed me to kind of make that story up in my mind mm. as to what happened hmm. alright what right. are you guys excited about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm excited about the NCAA tournament this is my favorite week of the year I just love staying up late watching basketball, filling out brackets. I wish you loved staying up late watching the movies that we. Yeah, that'd be nice. For a for okay, I watched. I was the only one at this table to watch one of your movies this week. That's so right. Back off. How dare you, sir? That's right. Finally, <laughs> every year in Knoxville, Tennessee, at the end of March, there's a avant-garde music festival called Big Ears, and I go every year. I actually, played it in 2010, and it's just the most phenomenal and inspiring music experience. I've ever had every year. It's it's a bunch of people. It's a lot of older people who have great respect for this, all these classical or jazz or total weirdo musics that come in. And um, it's just an amazing experience and, and really gives me inspiration for the rest of the year. So I'm super excited to be going to that soon. I wanted to pick something musical. So I wanted to talk about this band, Future Islands, which uh, is, is come 
become one of my favorite bands of the past few years. I, I kind of grew up in music, played in bands and, and really um, was all about music and movies have kind of replaced that. But Future Islands is this band that has, has come in and really impressed me in the last few years. And I've um, seen them play a couple of times. I just think that they're, they're great kind of, um, you know, keyboardy stuff. I heard, um, a, I heard a new Future Islands song today. Yeah. Very dynamic lead singer. Here's what I'm excited about. There's this group Gibby told me about years ago. It's this like German women's choir. What are they called? Scala and yeah, Colney? What are they called? Scala and Colney? Scala. And they take well-known songs and they do these like beautiful versions of them. Yeah, so- they, Social Network trailer is where you would have heard them. It before, did. They yeah. did uh, Creep, Creep by Radiohead, and they did one of uh, David Bowie's Heroes. Mm. And I've listened to that song like a hundred times in the past week. It's incredible. Mm. That was in a trailer. It was in the trailer. It was in um, Billy Flynn's Long That's Halftime Walk. Guys, thanks for listening. Yes, thank you. We Love you guys. are we are halfway through season two of this thing. Yikes! What? How is that possible? Happy Le Mans, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, what are we talking about next week? Oh, a uh, 50-year-old playing a 70-year-old. Uh, one of the most famous and celebrated actors in the world who you seem to think is still underrated. Oh, a guy who had 800 auditions before landing his breakout role. And a samurai. Oh, so our favorite actors. Yes. Oh, perfect. He is underrated, though. No, he's not. They're very. He's not at all. It's ridiculous. Not even close. This is Howard Cosell. Truly a sight to behold. Let us know how your list differs at, at FightAboutFilm on Facebook and Twitter. Or email us at FightAboutFilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Newell. Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier.
Jerry Maguire, Jerry Maguire, he was a sports agent, then he got fired. Those are the lyrics to the Jerry Maguire song. Jerry Maguire.